This is the Embrace the Messy podcast. I'm Shannon Schinkel. I'm a high school educator, challenge seeker, lifelong learner, and embracer of all things messy. I find my inspiration from individuals who are passionate about learning and embracing change. Join me as I share my own experiences and interview people who will inspire you to embrace the messy too. My dad was an elementary teacher from about 1964 to 1998. Over his career, he mainly taught grade 7. I went the high school path, so to be honest, my dad and I didn't really talk a lot of shop about projects and lesson plan ideas because we taught in different spheres. He also seemed to take, at least in my head, a typically traditional approach to teaching, learning, and assessment. So given that I am pretty progressive in those areas, I figured he didn't understand what I was doing, challenging the status quo. I never bothered sharing my blog posts, and when I did mention something about assessment, how do I put this nicely, it felt almost too hard to explain to my father, who had been out of the field for a while, so I just didn't. Well, as it turns out, I should have discussed the things I was passionate about with my father a long time ago, and here's why. Back in July of 2023, some of you may have read online that I wrote an op-ed piece for the Vancouver Sun regarding British Columbia's new reporting order. There had been some, let's call it pushback, from some folks who didn't understand what the new reporting order entailed, especially regarding the elimination of letter grades up to grade 9. After stewing over several inaccurate Facebook posts and tweets, I decided to write the op-ed piece to explain why shifting to standards-based grading and learning is better for kids. I won't go into details here. If you want to read it, you can Google it. My dad, being a proud dad, read it and congratulated me for my efforts. I figured he was just doing his, you know, daddy duty and giving me the usual "atta girl, way to go, kid, and such. And then he asked me about more particulars about what I do in my classroom, about standards-based grading, etc. He seemed generally fascinated by how I was using, you know, only recent learning to dictate overall scores. He was really fascinated by the story I told in my op-ed piece, how students took more risks and enjoyed learning when the focus was shifted away from grades. I was surprised, not by his interest in me, because my dad and I are quite close, but surprised by his interest in what I do with regards to assessment. Then he further surprised me, when he told me this story. In his early days as a teacher, in the early 1970s, I believe, he said that when he submitted his grades to the principals at the end of the year or at report card time, he had to do it on the bell curve. That meant, in simple terms, there could only be so many A's, B's, and C's. It also meant there had to be a few failures. Whoever landed at the bottom, marks-wise, failed the class. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And then he told me how much he hated it and how it bothered him so much. It didn't matter how strong the class was or how weak, he had to grade on the curve. However, one year, when he had a particularly strong, curious class, he had a young man who worked so hard and managed to attain a C+. But as he was at the bottom of the pack, my dad was supposed to fail him. And he refused. He submitted his marks as, he, as it was. I could not do that to this kid who had worked so hard, he told me, and I could hear a bit of anger in his tone. It wasn't fair, he said. There was no way I was going to fail him. I was a little worried about what might have happened as a result of what my dad, you know, was trying to do back then, wasn't sure. And I asked him what happened and if he was disciplined for going against the status quo. And he said he defended the boy, the class, and himself. And they wound up accepting my father's grades as he wanted them to be. Now, it might seem odd for a child to be proud of their father, but I could have bloody cried listening to this story. My father, assessment renegade and rabble rouser. I had no idea. My dad turned 81 this year. 
and it has dawned on, my, on me that I need to make sure I cherish as many moments as I can with him. He has always been such a great dad and a great source of inspiration. I can tell you one thing for sure. Since that conversation, I have a new appreciation for this man, especially as a teacher. Maybe I got my progressive assessment killer instinct from my father. Who knew? Thank you, Dad. Do you know who else has a phenomenal assessment killer instinct? Natalie Vardabasso. Natalie is an educator, coach, speaker, and passionate learner. Driven to make education empowering for all, she has developed expertise in equitable assessment and grading practices and can break down complex topics into practical strategies to drive school improvement. In her spare time, she hosts a podcast with Alex Noel called the EduCrush Podcast and currently lives in Calgary, Alberta. I hope you enjoy my interview with Natalie Vardabasso. Natalie Vardabasso, welcome to hey. the Embrace the Messy podcast. Hi, Shannon. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so excited. So before we get into some great conversation, I just wanted to give you a little shout out and tell you that I'm just, I'm so inspired by you. I, I think all of the work that you're doing on Instagram and on your podcast and the empowerment ecosystem, you are amplifying, amplifying educators' voices and whether it's intentionally or unintentionally, amplifying women's voices who mm. are taking <laughs> taking the lead right yes and yes. and that's huge because i i love this idea that you know the world needs to know that women have these strong voices and we mm -hmm. can take we can take we're we're taking the lead and we're uh you know working alongside educators so i mean i just I just think it's Aww. it's fantastic and it's really it helps me amplify you're amplifying my voice too right so because I'm Absolutely. a woman well right? I appreciate so. that and I feel like it's interesting because when I branded edgy crush way back in the day the podcast and it was all pink there were some feelings about that and I held strong to it's going to be pink let it be <laughs> and mm -hmm. now that the Barbie movies come out and everyone's dressed in pink and like reclaiming <laughs> their femininity I was like right it was just before my right. time <laughs> okay have, have you seen the Barbie movie I haven't seen it yet actually I'm supposed to go this weekend I want to go with my core girls that like we sit and drink wine and talk all things yeah the patriarchy and feminism together so they've already seen it a few times and they're now waiting because they, they want to be there to watch me see it because I'm probably going to cry the whole time it's like I don't mean to be like I mean I think in a in a it, my dream job is to be a movie critic or, <laughs> or, or, or a critic of, of television commercials, but that's another story, but it is fantastic. It's not, well, you've already heard enough. I yeah. think probably through the yeah. socials that this is, this is what happens. Um, so no, it's so great. I want to, I'm very curious about individuals origin stories. Mm -hmm. And so I would like you, if you wouldn't mind going back and talking about what inspired you to become an educator? And then also, you know, if you want to segue in, why the interest also in, in assessment? <laughs> sure. I also love origin stories. I love knowing where, where people came from and why, but mine, I'm sure there's some folks in education that align, but probably not the, my, the majority. I got into education because I didn't want to be a teacher, which doesn't seem to make any sense, <laughs> but there's a backstory to this. And I think it goes all the way back to, and how assessments tied into it. My experiences in school, I was very much the success story of our traditional grading system. I had straight A's. I was always trying to figure out how many points away from perfect I was. I was always calculating and counting and quantifying everything. My dad was also my high school principal in Vernon, BC, which if for anyone who doesn't know, it's a very small town in the interior of British Columbia. And with a last name like Vardabasso and straight A's, everybody wants to tell you about how you're going to be a teacher someday. You're going to be a great teacher, just like your dad was. And so I decided I wanted to go the performing arts route I was like, absolutely not. On top of all of that, I always, now I can name it, but back then I couldn't. I was a very anxious teenager 
And I always say that this obsession with the points and the grades and the scores and did you ace it? Did you ace it? Was leaving me in a place that felt like a mental purgatory where I had this obsessive quest for perfection and a crippling fear of failure. And I had no intention of ever going back to that space. Once I got through my undergrad, I was like, Oh my gosh, I can finally breathe. Maybe I can start learning now. <laughs> like that's what it felt like. Get when, me out of here. That's what it felt like when I left school. I was like, oh, the keys to the kingdom. I'm so excited to learn. <laughs> and so years went by and I lived in Vancouver for a number of years and then eventually moved to Calgary and was doing the performing arts thing, getting odd jobs here and there, mostly serving and bartending to pay the bills. And by about the age of 25, my dad threw a Hail Mary and I don't use sports (laughs) metaphors often, but there you go. And he was like, I think I found the person who's going to inspire you to be a teacher. And I was like, absolutely not dad. It's not happening. And he's like, there's this man and he's starting a new innovative program at UBC Okanagan back here in Kelowna. You can come home and live rent-free for one year. And I know how much you're struggling with money and I will pay for the program. And just give it a shot. If you hate it, if you go for a month and you decide it's not for you, you can drop out. And so this man's name is Leighton Schnellert. He is quite an influential uh, educator, leader, thinker in BC. And for those who know him, (laughs) he is not about the version of school that I came from. That's highly competitive, highly individualized, all about points and grades and scores. And so I entered this program that was radically different than anything I'd ever imagined education could be. We were living and breathing this different education approach. And within a week, I was like, I found my people, like mm-hmm. I am home. <laughs> and mm-hmm. in that moment, I decided, okay, if I'm going to be a teacher, now that I'm open to it, I'm going to be the person that goes into the education system to change things. I am not going into it to replicate. And the second I feel like I'm replicating, I'm out. I got other options. I got other skills. I've been out in the world for many years making Mm -hmm. money. I know I'll be fine. And so that's kind of like the catalyst that called me in. And then how assessment comes in is interesting because in my first year of teaching, despite that history, despite that mindset, the first time as a young 26 year old standing in front of a group of teenagers, I was teaching grade 10. And I explained the activity and a kid looked at me and he's like six foot two, severe reading disability, angry at the world, looks at me. And I say, this is what we're going to do. And he goes, why should I? And I stood there and, you know, you feel your face go red, you're young, you're intimidated. And it was like every teacher who had stood on that spot before me, like came through me. And I was like, because if you don't, you'll get a zero, right? Like it just, yeah, I didn't even, yeah. you don't even question it. It's you just the knee jerk reaction, right? Because you that's how it. we were, that's how we were brought up. Like you're, you're quite a bit younger than me, mm-hmm. but it's, it was the same way when I was growing up. Cause you're like, right? I don't, I don't know. I'm oh, panicking. I'm on the spot. Yeah. And then I've got names yeah. on the board and I got, and so in the first year of teaching, I became more ruthless than any teacher I ever had, despite being someone who knows what that feels like, didn't want to be that person. And I had this kind of like crash and burn moment at the end of year one, where I was like, I hate this. I hate teaching. It's everything I thought it would be. It's, ex- I knew this would happen. This is why I didn't want to go back. And then I had to look myself in the mirror and be like, what if the problem's you? Because the truth is we didn't like, even in my program, we only kind of glossed over assessment and grading, like grading. I don't think we talked about at all, honestly, and assessment to the depth of like, I could define formative and summative and did some inquiry around that, but you get into the classroom and, and you just replicate because no one's told you that there's any other way of doing things. So it was that moment that I said, okay, if I were to take this up next year, I need to look at the assessment and grading thing and think about this differently. I don't quite have any models or people around me who are doing it differently, but I said I was going to change things. And so I always like to say it was the moment when I realized that assessment and grading was like the loose thread on the well-worn sweater of school that we're all so comfortable in. And I decided to tug it. And the more you tug on it, the more it just unravels everything we've believed to be true, but also reveals all of the beauty of authentic learning. And that's just been all I've been doing for the rest of my career now. <laughs> I, I I love that metaphor. And it, I think it really, it resembles a lot about my journey. Like mm-hmm. again, I, like I said before, I'm uh, of, a, of a little bit of a different generation, but I didn't get into the assessment piece until I was like about 40, right? Cause I'm 50. And that's exactly what happened. As soon as I started making things like proficiency sequences and proficiency mm-hmm. scales, what I thought I was doing is just is supporting the learners in the class, the the atypical. And I was moving away from, say, like, you know, like Shelley Moore says, like bowling mm-hmm. down the middle, aiming for the average. And that's mm-hmm. the myth of average. And ultimately, a lot of other things came in 
interview as I kept experimenting and again, like you said, pulling on the thread, right? Mm -hmm. That it was actually meeting the needs of vulnerable learners, meeting the needs of exceptional learners, being more inclusive, more equitable, et cetera. So mm -hmm. I think I think your story is is so great. And I it's different than what I hear from a lot of educators because I what I normally usually hear from educators is they go in, they want to inspire the, you know, the young people. And I'm not suggesting that that's not what you were trying to do, mm -hmm. but you had this sophisticated frame of, of, of reference that you actually wanted to change things. You actually mm -hmm. wanted to change education right from the get-go, right? It took some yeah. of us a little bit longer for and that. I think I have to acknowledge, and it's, it's taken many years in reflecting, especially in a lot of the privileges I have growing up with a dad who was not only my principal, he was the president of the BC principals association for years. Yeah. He then worked on the ministry on a lot of these new, you know, curriculums that came out. That's how we meet, met Leighton. I was surrounded by educational innovators my entire life and was just sitting around the dinner table with folks that were making moves and making change. And I don't think like, cause it's your parents and you're a kid and you're like, eh, yep. you're annoying. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what do you know? Yep. Yep. And it wasn't until years later that I was like, I think I was kind of swimming in this. Cause I'd ask my dad questions like dad, because one of the first books he gave me was The Element by Ken Robinson. Like most dads oh, yeah. don't give their kid that book, right? So I read it. And at the time he had created a program in his high school whereby at lunch, different kids could come up and like host. So they could play music, their bands could perform, they could perform poetry, whatever it may be, they could dance. And it was a way to try to like, and they called it the element. And there was a big poster made because he was like, we don't hold enough space for student passion in school. And so he downplays so much now and he's been retired for many years. And he's like, oh, I wasn't that big a deal. And he's also since revealed. And it's funny, I like, cause I don't have these memories, but now I'm like, oh, it makes sense. He left his job around my age, no idea. And he traveled for many years, helping schools embrace this crazy new thing called the internet. I'm like, what? I must have watched that as a kid. Like there's some like deeper genetic, like nurture thing going on here, perhaps too. I think there's so much that we miss when we're younger. So my dad's a retired teacher as well. My sister's mm -hmm. a teacher. So I, I was surrounded very much like you and I really didn't, I, I mean, I knew kids really liked my dad and I saw some of the stuff that he did in there, but I didn't ever sit down and have these major intellectual conversations about things like assessment and project-based mm -hmm. learning and what you're doing in the class. But I, I did, I was inspired. I mean, that's why, you know, I had, I don't, like you said that you didn't really, you weren't really in, interested in teaching. And when I was little, I used to, you know, have all my teddy bears, you know, right around the chalkboard and I would teach the math and, and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So it, it was always there. Now mm -hmm. you were an instructional coach, right? Yeah. With mm -hmm. an assessment lead kind of <laughs> framework, right? Yeah. Um, in your last couple of years of teaching. Yeah. 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 My, uh, so there was a bit of overlap. I taught my first year, first two years, I both taught and did that roll off the edge of the desk as many have had to yeah. do. And you get all the commas after your name after a while, you're like, wait a minute, this doesn't feel fair. Um, yeah. So I did that for a number of years and then just a bit of instructional coaching. And then it very much shifted into this assessment lead. We even rebranded my title because I had this clear sense of that is the fire. Like mm -hmm. all the things you say you want as a school is not going to be us running around working one-on-one -on -one with teachers to model different instructional strategies here and there. Like we got to mm -hmm. rebuild this system. We're not looking at the system. What was, what was the most challenging and, you know, messy bits of doing that job? <laughs> so much. The first year. <laughs> yeah. You, you oh know, my gosh. Yeah. yeah this is you the know, right place I'm nodding going, yeah, <laughs> uh -huh. I know it's messy. Anyone yeah. who's done a role like this, because the, the classroom, there's, you know, myths out there that teaching is the most thankless job in the world. It's so hard. That is such BS. Teaching is wonderful. You build this incredible ecosystem with these wonderful human beings. You build these relationships with the parents. You get these great cards and gifts and so much kind <laughs> feedback. And everyone's like, you're making a difference. Then you leave the classroom to start something like instructional coaching. And everyone sees you coming and rolls their eyes and is like, don't tell me nothing. You're like, right. And you also don't have a class anymore. So now you have this added pressure of, I've got to inspire people 
to want to join me to potentially learn something that they don't feel they need to learn at all. And they're an adult and they have many, many years of momentum and history behind them. So the hardest part about this job at the beginning was just that loss of the community you have around you, like in the classroom and that feeling day after day, like I made an impact today. Like I did that because it can feel like you're starting to go, like you're starting to lose it in the first year you hear Mm -hmm. that'll never work with my kids. Uh, that's not the way we do things here. Oh, that's nice. That's cute. That's just the pendulum swinging again. I've got, I'm older. I know it's going to swing yeah. back. Give Don't it, give it five it. years and there'll be something else that's new, right? Yep. Yeah. So you start to hear all this. And then on top of it, you know, you're not dealing with curriculum anymore. You're not dealing with, here's my course. Here's the start. And everything is so micromanaged as a teacher. It's like open. And you're like, there's a Seth, I don't know if it's Godin or Godin, but he writes a lot about innovation and he says the fear is freedom. Like that's one of the hardest parts of change and innovation and leadership is suddenly you have all this freedom and they're like, go forth. But all of like the the administrators are so busy and their heads down swamped all day, every day, teachers are heads down swamped. And you're kind of in this middle ground going, my job's to inspire learning and everyone's too busy to talk to me. (laughs) So it's a very strange, lonely, like I felt very, very lonely, which is actually what inspired the podcast at the beginning. I felt like I was on an Island, like perhaps I was completely out to lunch. And what I had created in my classroom was just such an anomaly in this education system. And I needed to like, make sure (laughs) like maybe someone else was out there that thought like me, but that's probably the messiest part is the emotional it's, it almost is like grieving. You have to grieve the loss mm-hmm. of your classroom. You have to grieve that sense of like confidence and confidence. Cause you're also a beginner all over again. You're doing a completely mm-hmm. different job all of a sudden. And it's, it is a different set of tools than, than what we use to, you know, manage our classroom and kind of the, in the business of school. Mm-hmm. Who or what did you look for in order to feel less like an Island? Like, where did you find inspiration to, mm-hmm kind of roll with the punches. The podcast was a big piece of that. And so I called it edu crush intentionally because it's like, I have an edu crush on you. So I was thinking twofold when I created it, I, and I actually pitched it to the school and, you know, they gave me some support and a bit of financial support to actually get it off the ground. Cause I'm like, this is professional development because what I was able to do was go to these people whose books I'd read or, you know, memories of, I had this professor in university that did something so different than anything else I'd done. I want to ask them why they did that. And so I, I sought people outside and then was able to bring them into our community as like these other voices. So not only was it like kind of selfish and that I got to talk to them and like have this, this Mm -hmm. really relational moment of connecting heart to heart as people trying to, you know, change education for the better. But then my community got to benefit from these free professional development opportunities that this person would often cost, you know, $8,000 to come in and speak. And here's an hour of them going super deep into their work and revealing different parts of it that perhaps they didn't talk about in their book. So that was the one side. And then the other side is I was like, this is a great way to amplify the stories in my community. So Mm -hmm. one of the beautiful things of being a coach is you get access to so many other people's practice and how they do what they do in their classroom. And so I'd see and hear and be a part of different collaborative projects and be like, you have to tell this story. Mm -hmm. And that became a really fun coaching moment in and of itself, because so many people think they have nothing special to offer Mm -hmm. and they have nothing to say and being able to be like, no, you need to share this story. What I witnessed, like what you did with those kids was incredible. And here's what I saw. I'm like, let's amplify it. So it kind of became this little like unanticipated because it really came from just the emotional need to not feel lonely change like vehicle that suddenly everyone was listening and teachers that never engaged in PD would typically get up and leave within the first five minutes. Like we all know those ones that are like, I'm mm-hmm. going to the bathroom and they don't come mm-hmm. back. One of them reached out and he's like, you know, Nat, you know, I don't like PD. I'm like, I know. <laughs> he goes, and when I walk my dog at night and I'm smoking a J, I don't know if I can say that on your podcast, but I just did it. <laughs> so this is like, right. Someone who's just yeah, like, yeah, I'm yeah. not buying into this yeah. thing. He goes, yeah. I actually, you have a nice sounding voice, but I'm actually liking what you have to say. And I'm like, right. I was, that's the best feedback I've ever gotten. Thank you. Yeah. Like you really just realize that yeah, how yeah, we yeah. approach change. We have to get outside of like the top down. I'm going to tell you you're going to do like, cause it, it's a yeah. rule that kind of forces you to. So, you yeah. know, and then it 
kind of became the foundation of how I approached everything I do with change. This, I, yeah. this mindset of, you know, amplifying stories and talking to folks as if they're my edgy crush. Well, you're, you're a role model to me because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm just new to this podcasting thing as well. Uh, so three years of edgy crush. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. That's mm-hmm. awesome. <laughs> you, you co-host now, or you mm-hmm. share the stage with Alex Noel and And here's the thing, like thinking about, it's like your mission statement, right? Mm -hmm. You're, you know, celebrating the brave humans who are reimagining education. So I know you've already touched on this a little bit. What are the characteristics of someone who is Mm -hmm. one of your edu crushes? Yeah. Well, in subsequent taglines for the show. I think I've started to unpack it a bit more, but I feel like there's three criteria, if you will. The first is there's someone who's not afraid to ask the uncomfortable questions. I think it's all about asking the right questions. It's you really have to be someone who is sparking the learning in others and in yourself, you know, at the end of my first year, being able to ask myself, is the problem me? Is that how I set up my classroom? Is it perhaps something I could change and not the education system's the problem and I need to leave? Like, that's a hard question to ask. And the second part is they continuously empower themselves and others. I feel that that is always two-way. I don't think you can empower yourself without also inspiring others to think different and to want to, to, to tap into their own power. And I think we give away a lot of our power in education. I think because of like how hierarchical it is and how top down it can feel at times, it seems like we have no power, but that's just absolutely not true. There's power within us and there's power when we gather with other people and it's way more impactful than the power someone holds because they're the superintendent or because they're the principal. I think we've just been sold that story for a long time. Um, So that's the second piece, continuously empower themselves and others. And then the final one's just embrace complexity the further I get into this work, and this is so aligned with the Embrace the Messy podcast, you have to recognize that we shifted in the 90s when the digital internet revolution happened from a complicated system to a complex system. In a complicated system, you know, we could have strap plans with fairly certain predictability about what the next three to five years would look like, have everything mapped out, check things off, awesome. Now we have so much information and disruption coming at us all day, every day, that it's complex, but what I've found happen, and I love this, I just started making up this phrase, so feel free to borrow it, but people now marvel at complexity. They'll go, oh, we should change grading. You're absolutely right, but it's so complex. And they'll almost say it like, it's like, oh my God, like it's a dirty word. It's like, oh, Mm -hmm. we have to be scared of it. That means it's impossible, but complexity is not synonymous with impossible. It just means we need a different set of tools than we've used in the past. Story is an incredible tool because you have to move people now because there's too much happening all at once. There's a lot of static. You got to move people and we can only ever take the first right step, unfortunately. And the Mm -hmm. beauty of a complex system though, is because there's so much information, it'll give us feedback. So Mm -hmm. we nudge the system. It gives us feedback and then we know the next step to take. So what makes it so hard is just taking the first step. Mm -hmm. Just being brave enough to do it. What I really hear you saying is, the folks that are your edu crush are they're purposefully they're very vulnerable they make mm-hmm. themselves vulnerable they show a lot of courage i know it sound probably mm-hmm. like if you know thinking about like the work of like Brene brown and that kind of totally. thing and they put a mirror up to themselves and they're willing to reflect they're willing willing to to wrestle with these ideas you mentioned that there's educators who are willing to embrace the messy do you find it's like it's a small percentage mm-hmm. of the entire group. And mm-hmm. then how does that work to try to get that, that messy middle? You know, I'm kind of thinking of like yeah. the way Simon Sinek, you know, addresses mm-hmm. this, right? How do you yeah. then try to inspire the change for the folks that are, they're, they're, they're comfortable, they're kind of interested, but they're questioning. Yeah. Oh, first of all, shout out to Brene Brown. She is such an inspiration and foundation for so much of my thinking and work and what an incredible female voice and leader disrupting the leadership space. So just have to own that. I think, um, what's so unique about education, perhaps other like different than other fields 
And you also come from like a performing arts background. So like when you've been in different spaces that are not necessarily like not your typical education spaces, mm-hmm. it, I think we notice this more than perhaps others do, but when you were really good in school, when you got straight A's, when you got a large sense of your identity from being so good at that, I think a lot of folks want to go in and to replicate that very predictable, safe system that they were successful in. And that's a part of what makes this work so hard and helping people to embrace the messy is they've wrapped up their identity in things being exactly how they are, which is why they became a teacher. And that's why whenever I do any work with a new school, new district, like we spend a, probably more time than people think is necessary talking about our stories and where we came from and why and how it's shaping our perspective of especially something like grading. Because I think, I think teachers have some of the most beautiful, compassionate, vulnerable hearts mm-hmm. of any group of people I've ever met. So I know that to be true. And I know they can be some of the most risk averse, uh, nervous, perfectionist. I want to be doing everything right because I am so conditioned by being so good in school that I don't want to get any points taken off, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's like these two things working together. It's such, but that's where the messy is. And that's what I kind of love. I had one of my best sessions ever this week. And it's probably because I was delirious. My plane came in late. (laughs) I I didn't get until until Florida, which is also Florida is like jumping in a hot tub. Like I have never experienced heat and humidity like that. So I was already like discombobulated, couldn't sleep because it was like this long night of driving and getting to my hotel. So I woke up on like three hours of sleep, which is like, I'm like, oh gosh, how am I going to get through eight hours? I don't want to do this. I'm so tired. I just want to go to bed. And in many ways, that's almost where some, and I've had teaching days like that. You probably have two and you're like, oh, mm-hmm. if I could. and because you're a little bit out of it, it's like, you just drop the facade. Yep. You're yep. like, I'm here. I'm real. I look like crazy. My hair is like, because of the humidity, the gecko ran across my foot. Like, let's do this thing. <laughs> and I was way more open and authentic. Like that was the first group I had ever talked about, you know, leaving my job and why I did that and how scary that was. And just like, I talked, I told them the story of the first speaking contract I got, how I absolutely bombed it. And we were all laughing about it, but like they met me there and we went into that yeah. space and we were, we were right in that space. Like when you're in it, it's so good though. Like, oh, I know right? there's not a single person in that room. Who's not hanging on every single thing that's going on because like, they want to go there. The vulnerability is there. Like, this is why we get into education. Yeah. We love humans. We love the relational piece. And then when that other human story is nudging your sense of reality about assessment and grading, you're like, mm-hmm. like the dissonance is beautiful. Like, yeah. it, and it, yeah. I had so yeah. many moments of like people running up and like grabbing my arm and like, I got to tell you this too, like just really wanting to connect. And, you know, it genuinely was like, okay, we're doing it. But, but I think that's what I mean by complexity. Like, if you, if I were to come in that day and deliver an eight hour lecture on like the research of assessment, mm. <laughs> no, it just not, yeah. it wouldn't have happened. No. So I guess my answer to your, my long-winded answer to your question is it's a yes. And <laughs> I like long-winded I think, answers. It's all I good. think, yeah, I think teachers are some of the most resistant to change because of their success in the school system. And they are one of the most heart forward, vulnerable, wonderful groups of human beings that we have in society. And I think it's just the way that the historical way that we set up the system Mm -hmm. doesn't allow them to step into that messy. And so it's like this constant dance. Yeah. They want to go there, but then they're often talked at and talked down to, and they can't. And things like COVID and, you know, in, in the high school I work at, you know, uh, TikTok challenges, which involve, you know, vandalism and all of these things. And now we've got, you know, again, this um, new reporting order and, you know, we're still evolving with curriculum change. And that's just adding to, for lack of a better word, the excuses Mm -hmm. not to want to make, make the leap. Um, but I really, I love your approach in terms of what you just talked about, about letting your guard down and being vulnerable. That works with students. Mm-hmm. That works with teachers when they are, in effect, like your, you know, students in larger bodies, right? Mm-hmm. And, and they eat it up. They want to see the human side of this. They yeah. want to know about the messy middle don't we don't want to walk in to just talk about how it's all just sunshine and roses 
this mm-hmm. is hard friggin' work, right? Mm-hmm. And when we're honest with them that this was the process, that this takes time, but let me tell you, uh, you know, these are the rewards and this is how I feel. And when you have that positive energy in front of adults, they'll, it, it's contagious, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I want to come back a little bit, back up just a little bit to how you mentioned that you started doing some work now, um, some speaking engagements and some workshops and presentations. Mm -hmm. In 2022, you made the big leap and decided to um, push pause on teaching education, right? And uh, go forth and be a consultant with Solution Tree Canada. Mm -hmm. And for our listeners who are not familiar with Solution Tree. Solution Tree is, it's a, it's a platform, it's a business that helps educators get in touch with um, presenters and other professionals to help them with things like professional learning communities and assessment mm-hmm. and reading and all sorts of wonderful, wonderful things. Mm-hmm. That when, when you made that announcement, I was mm-hmm. like, cheerleader like go (laughs) Go. Natalie and on the inside I was like holy crap freaking out for you too (laughs) right (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean that's the reality there's like and and I know it was holy heck scary to 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 make that that was that's a huge leap and but I mean congratulations I just think again that's vulnerable that's you're modeling more courage right like Mm -hmm. I think that's like I again like I said I was cheering and I was also freaking out for you how has it been so far I mean you've already alluded that some of it's been just so (laughs) wonderful but yeah and thank you for sharing the crash and burn uh scenario there too it's hard hard hard, there's been some of the highest highs and some of the lowest lows (laughs) ever experienced in my career this past year. But first thing I wanted to touch on, uh, you said, you know, making the decision to leave teaching. That's something I've been thinking a lot about the past year because I, it actually started because I was scrolling through Instagram one day and I saw this post by, I think the groups like board teachers or something, it's an Instagram account. And it said, let's normalize putting our hands up the second a consultant walks in and asking, when's the last time you were in the classroom? And uh, there was hundreds of people liking being like, yeah, screw these people. Who are they to tell us anything? You go back in the classroom, you try teaching my kids. And it's something you start to like, and I'm probably just more attuned to it now because I'm not in the classroom. And I haven't ever said this publicly somewhere yet. And I've been meaning to somehow, some way. So maybe it's today, but I don't feel like I've left teaching. I've never felt like I left teaching. Even when I was not in the classroom and I was mourning that space, I had to figure out who was I as a teacher, as a coach. And now who am I as a teacher, as a consultant or as a speaker? And there are days where I walk in one time I had, it was like the last day before a district was going for summer break. They're in the school gym there's 350 high school teachers and I'm to lead seven hours on assessment. Don't you tell me that what I'm having to do in that room is not teaching. (laughs) It's now teaching. I actually feel like what's happened this past year is teaching on steroids. Cause the beauty of teaching is like, you can go in and try something. And if it bombs, you're like, Oh, well, that kind of sucked. (laughs) Let's all laugh about it and like pick it up the next day and try something else. I get one day. Yeah. One day with these folks and I have to win their trust quickly. I have to hit my points. Clearly. I have to go fast, but not too fast that I lose them because the host they're paying you good money for that day. They have certain outcomes they want you to hit. And there are times when like I do, I model formative assessment. I try to make it so overt for people. So I always do a good old classic cake and cooperative structure, give one, get one, move on to start every session, no matter how many people are in the room. And I can usually quickly learn because the question I love to ask for grading is why is it so hard to rethink grading? And so people come up to me because I get them to come up to me while they're doing their like give one, get one around the room and they'll start telling me things. And so I had a recent contract where the host thought they were all good and on the same page and ready to go. And in that first 20 minutes, I went, absolutely not. You've got some huge mindset blocks and barriers and misconceptions and like people that passionately believe like this will not work in this room. So like us setting up the system today is going to be pushback after pushback after pushback. So I just went over and was like, all right, 
we're adjusting the day. And like, luckily I've done this enough. Now I can literally take whole sections and like move them and grab something from somewhere else and be like on the fly, like redesigning. You have to be really flexible. It's teaching. Yeah. 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 Anyways, that's the point I'm trying to make. This is all teaching and there's, and now I get brought on. It's not one-offs. It's often for multi-year contracts. So you have very complex outcomes that you're trying to hit. You're trying to gather the right types of evidence. You're trying to communicate how the journey is going and move people along. Like it's, it's just more teaching on steroids. I like to say, um, so that's the one piece of how it's going is like just refinding myself. Like being a beginner Mm -hmm. again was so hard. Like I said, those first few crash and burns, because I went into the space thinking I had to be more masculine, which is interesting. It felt more like a leadership space that, Mm. and I still have crap to unlearn and untangle that leadership Mm -hmm. means man. And so I would show up in like a tone that didn't even sound like me. Like the first speaking contract I bombed, they put me in front of 200 principals and I was down in Nevada and I, it was their first exposure to rethinking grading. So principals are a tricky bunch as it is. They can sometimes be, they're so busy. I get it, but trying to grab their attention is hard at the best of times. So the mm-hmm. computers are out. They got lots of emails coming in. Their phones are going off. They got things they got to work on. Yeah. So, but I was so not in my authentic self to be able to just like mm-hmm. drop the guard and connect with these human beings that I went into like, I don't know. I think honestly, I was trying to be Tom Shimmer because he was like okay. my mentor and he presents yep. in a way that's very like assertive and it's not me. Yeah. Yeah. I am in times, yeah. but not in the way that yeah. he is. Like we have different yeah. styles, different stories, different voices, and that's totally fine. So how did so, you find your voice? How did you find oh, your voice? Just finally being a little bit more playful. I, I started shifting things. Uh, Like I felt like I had to do exactly everything, how everyone else had done it. That's written books and talked about these ideas. And if I didn't replicate it perfectly, I was doing it wrong. And I started to give myself the permission to just like that. Give one, get one, move on totally my own addition. I was like, I love cake and I want to get them up and moving more. And Mm -hmm. of course I thought it would go horribly. And the first time I did it got amazing feedback. And so it starts to fuel you a little bit. I think the hardest part about this journey and the thing behind the scenes, if we're going to be vulnerable here that no one talks about when you decide to make a big change like that in yourself, like I'm going to shift this whole narrative of who I've been and how I've done my career. Not everybody wants to come along with you. Some people, it's your family and friends. It's not others out in the professional world. It's the people in your own world that look at you and go, this isn't what I signed up for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is this? Yeah. <laughs> I don't like yeah. this. So full transparency, like I had left my job a month later, I got married. So there was like a whole bunch of change happening, but my partner was really not happy that I had left my job. And so six okay. months later, we actually made the decision to separate. Mm-hmm. And because it just, and I had to really ask myself, like, is this what you really, really want? Like, and that's a, that when you talk about uncomfortable questions, yeah. right? Cause you're like, yeah. well, what if I made a mistake? What? I should just go back to the classroom. I was so happy in the classroom. It was so easy. Everything was so mm-hmm. easy. Everyone was so happy with yeah. everything I was doing all the time. But I had to look myself in the mirror and be like, you promised yourself at the beginning of this journey right. that you were going to make an impact and you were going to make change. So if you go back on that now, because you're feeling so trapped in the hardest choice of your life, yeah. what if you live the rest of your life feeling regret and feeling yeah. you know, so that's, that's yeah. the low part of this is some things yeah. have had to fall away and I've had yeah. Some dark, dark moments too. Yeah. Like, of course. And almost also moments of like, oh my gosh, yeah. I can't believe I'm here. We're doing this. Well, change. Like it's amazing. Natalie, thank you so much for that vulnerability. Like that's, I really appreciate that sharing, but I think, you know, it reminds me of, do you ever want, listen to, um, we can do hard things. Podcast. Oh, of course, Glenn and oh, Doyle, right? Back. Come on, right? <laughs> and and that often is that's the message to everyone, right? Like we often have the little that inner voice that telling us that you know maybe this will be too much, maybe it, and 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 it sometimes it just takes you know you can have like ten people telling you to just go forth and conquer the world, and then that one voice, one person, or that one little voice, whether it's inside your head or it's one actual person saying. Hmm, but will you Mm -hmm. have enough time? Is this good? What about your, you know, all these Mm -hmm. kinds of things. And then you start second guessing, right? Mm -hmm. You know, maybe, maybe I don't have time. Right. And we don't know until we've actually done it. Right. Mm -hmm. I think it's important that we actually have regrets, right? Like, because that's living, Mm -hmm. you're living, you're living, Mm -hmm. you're doing what you love 
And then if something were to happen, you know, a couple of years down the road and you don't love it anymore and you've given it your best shot, you, you switch gears and do something else. Mm-hmm. I personally think, I mean, I've never, I've, I mean, I've seen you in action on your, your podcast and in different, you know, little snippets of presentations and things like that. And you look like it fires you up and it lights you mm-hmm. up. And, um, you know, I think that's, you know, I'm really inspired by the fact that you, you know, you really embrace the messy there. No, thank you. So after you quit your job, you started at Solution Tree in Mm -hmm. that middle there where before you were actually starting to get jobs through Solution Tree, you Mm -hmm. started the empowerment Mm -hmm. ecosystem. Mm -hmm. It's all I'm hearing about, lady. It's, (laughs) and I'm saying, oh my gosh, like, I mean, I'd heard about it. I had already signed up. I'm going to Ottawa in, in, um, in August. So I know by the time that this is actually out and about, I will have already gone and come back. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I didn't get the chance. I didn't, you know, I looked at, you know, signing up for the, the sessions that you did, the conference that you, you put on, right. uh, in right. Vancouver mm-hmm. and I've just been hearing this buzz. And then I listened <laughs> to your podcast where you, debriefed with uh, Tom Shimmer and Katie White. Mm -hmm. So for listeners who've never heard about the empowerment ecosystem, tell them about the empowerment ecosystem. Oh gosh. Well, it kind of connects to everything we've just talked about where when I left my job and it was like, I'm in the shrapnel of that decision. And I'm, you know, my first Monday comes around and I don't have a job to go to. I was like, what, what do I do? (laughs) Like, what do I want to build? I'm such a creator. I've always had a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit. And I know that that phrase sometimes in education feels dirty. And I've, I've gotten some very harsh feedback from folks that are like, Oh, now you're just about making money. And I'm like, no, it's just that I don't work for an education board or school anymore. Like I have to fund myself. That's really the only difference, but the beauty about an entrepreneurship that no one wants to talk about the more uncomfortable question is like, what do I have that I can offer that will be valuable in this world? Cause like money is all value at the end of the day. And So I started mining my own story. That's what I did in the first few weeks. I got a really incredible coach and mentor. I believe in surrounding myself with incredible educators. I am the sum of the people around me. And I realized that my story of leaving the classroom and and realizing its assessment and then making certain shifts in how I approached the work to lead to real change was so hard. And in that is some incredible learning. So I said, that's, that's it. That's the empowerment ecosystem. It's for people that are right in that moment. They are maybe still in the classroom in some level, but they're, they're a lead in other ways. And they're given an extra prep or not, but there's someone who's looked at their school at their district and said, I'm going to be the person that does this. Like, I'm going to figure this out. Perhaps they've been given a mandate and some folks that have come in, you know, they're the assessment lead or the grading lead or whatever you want to call it. And they're like, this ain't it. What I'm being told to do, like, this isn't it, but what do I do? And where do I start? And and my first thought was get them in community. We need to get these people together because that's what I would have loved if I could go back is being in a tight community with others. And then also a bit of mentorship. So I really, I, I got a prototype group of people together last October, all over North America, very similar points in the journey that I was previously on. And we just co-created the learning together. I kind of had the catalyst ideas of like, okay, here's what I've teased out are kind of the core moves and the core pieces. We went through sessions live and then they gave me tons of feedback. So I took that all in, redesigned it. And then it's since kind of just become like other things have evolved from it. Like the conference where the summit, as we call it, Mm -hmm. because an ed tech company spaces edu reached out and was like, we'd love to support you to gather folks together. And then of course, mm-hmm. other people got involved. It took on, a, and it, it was one of those things where you're like, I don't, I'm not ready. I'm too busy right now. And then universe just like keeps knocking and is like, mm, you're mm-hmm. ready. Tom comes on. He's like, I'll help. Katie comes on. She's like, I'll yes. help. And the universe is like, you're yeah. ready. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Stop it's time. It's time. So I just learned to listen to that more yeah. and more. So we're heading into the second year and I'm hopeful that we'll get a lot of other educators on board. I find my work. It's very, it's actually turned into a beautiful symbiotic relationship with my consulting and speaking work. Like just this last week, you know, the person who hires me is usually the coach or the assessment lead or the director of instruction or whatever title they make up for that person in the middle. I like to say the middle children of education. And they usually at some point will pull me aside and be like, 
so uh, my job can be so frustrating at times and here's what I'm dealing. And they'll say all these things. And I'm like, yes, yes, yes. I've been there. You should join us. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. So yeah. It's, it feels so nice to me now that I'm actually so thankful and grateful. I had the time to set it up before I got so busy with the speaking and consulting because it's now a place I can like continue yep. this connection with people rather than being like, we had such a great time together. You finally felt like you had someone who got you, who affirmed you, who like doubled down on all the things you've been saying. Bye. <laughs> Gotta go yeah. talk to you never. Yeah. So yeah. it's, it's a community and it's a, a way to also give people some tools to make these changes take up in their community a little bit faster and more authentically. Yeah. I, I appreciate one of the messages that you've put out with the, with some of your, your wisdom for the empowerment ecosystem is that we can't go into assessment reform simply by walking into like a group of people and giving them either all the things you should do or shouldn't do and then leave right mm-hmm. that you've actually been telling educators you know to actually embrace the power of your own story mm-hmm. and make sure that you actually try to develop a community of some kind within these schools is that yeah. a fair huge assessment and pardon the yes. pun <laughs> huge part of it is build your i call it your coalition for change build your community internally And co-create is the other big theme we come back to a lot. So get into the messy middle, as you would say, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with people, like get into it with them, like elbow to elbow, like you've got to build this system with them. You can't just tell them what to do, then leave them on their own. This is assessment. What is so beautiful about assessment and grading. It's one of the few things that threads between every single classroom in the school. Mm -hmm. You could pull an instructional strategy that worked really well in English classes. Maybe it was a reading strategy and try to push it into every other context. And that happens all the time in PD Mm -hmm. schools. And it often doesn't work. And this is where PD gets such a bad rap. The beauty about assessment is it's an ongoing process of defining what's essential. How will we know if students are meeting what we have deemed as essential? And what are we going to do if they're not meeting it? There's professional learning communities at work. Like it's the heart, it's the engine Mm -hmm. of how we collaborate. So when you start to figure that out, it's like, oh, this Mm -hmm. is literally because even if you're not doing PLCs, if you use assessment or grading as a catalyst to bring your community together to figure it out, because it's only fair for kids that we get on the same page with how we're doing this then eventually it becomes the process of how you do things every single year. It's just, Mm -hmm. you you build a PLC. (laughs) Yeah, no. And that's, and that's the only way around it. My first year of really trying to implement change. I was part of a PLC in a junior high that I worked at for five years. And then sadly with budget cuts, the school closed. Mm -hmm. Then when I got shuffled over to the high school I'm at right now, I I, uh, have no one now, Mm -hmm. right. I'm starting Mm -hmm. over. And it was only in about the last five years I developed um, like a secondary assessment learning team. And that's because, again, an administrator who could see this as good work said, hey, you know, if you want to do like a book study and gather educators together. So from the first time going in and and I'll confess it, walking into the lion's den, talking Mm -hmm. about assessment on the first flipping day of the new school year, that's going to go over well. It was like, Mm -hmm. you know like that went over like a lead balloon and there were, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of criticism, but by the a year later coming back to it, which again, mm-hmm. wasn't ideal having this secondary assessment learning team, even if it was just like five or six people, mm-hmm. you scatter those people around the room, the conversation mm-hmm. changes because yes, it does. Huh? It's not just Shannon trying to sprinkle her assessment fairy dust on all of us, right. No. Telling us what to do and how to do it oh, look at how they're actually doing it, right? And that's, yes. again, that build, trying to build up that coalition, yeah. right? And to amplify yeah. another brilliant woman's name in this conversation, Margaret Wheatley, she's a theorist in, in yes. educational change and leadership and all of that. She always argues for, we need the technical and emotional in this work. And I think that's like the, that's the complexity of what we're doing in the ecosystem. And what I think I'm still on a learning journey to figure out how to better support people with, because I operated from the assumption when I built it, that everyone coming in would have the background of assessment knowledge that like you do, for instance, you spent mm-hmm. years writing about it, reading, organizing, speaking with folks. And I think sometimes folks that are passionate about leading this work, they don't even, they don't technically have all of that uh, foundational knowledge that they need. Yeah. So they'll lean really hard on the emotional side of it. 
And that's, they're both important. And that's what complexity is all about. It's not either, or it's both. And so we have to constantly be checking in with ourselves. Like, okay, I'm pulling people, I'm bringing people in. I've built the coalition. We are co-creating together. I need to step back. Do I actually technically know like the best practice around proficiency skills, for instance, or reassessment or some big topic that'll probably come up as you engage in this work. And, and that's where the sweet spot is, is always being in that dance between the technical and the emotional. So, so well put. I want to get, just we'll take a little brief turn into this assessment business and storytelling mm. And I want to touch on a post that you put on Instagram. And again, this is thinking about students and the assessment piece there. Mm. You wrote, there is no greater summative assessment than a student telling the story of their learning. And I think this is a great transition because we're talking about, you know, educators telling the story of their own learning journey. How do we we make that shift when we've got educators who might say, oh, I've got all of this work I've got to do in the classroom. I don't have time to be sitting and listening to the story Mm -hmm. of of, of their journey. I have this test I'm going to use instead. I've got this assignment, this worksheet. How how do I try to convince educators to listen to students actually listen to their stories? When we say there's no greater summative assessment, when I, when I said that, I think it begs a question right behind that. Who's assessment for? Who's assessment for? And if it's for us to extract evidence to put in a grade book, then yeah, that, that statement would make zero sense. Seems like a waste of time. But if assessment is for the learner <laughs> and their learning, then it makes complete sense because as human beings, we make sense of the world through story. Our reality is all constructed through story. We get stimulus coming in all the time and our brain tries to arrange it into antecedent and consequence into cause and effect. And that's how we make sense of things. And also story is at the root of our ability to empathize story is at the root of our ability to build community and culture, because what is culture, if not just a collection of shared fictions that we've all decided to come together and uphold to be true. So if learning is really about the learner, then their story would be the most accurate and valid piece of evidence we have of what was learned. Mm-hmm. It's the most important thing. One of the things I do with a lot of like project-based learning is, and it's my favorite part, they will have spent maybe 10 weeks working on like a 20% time project. We'll have a day where it's a celebration of learning. My favorite part is actually walking around and listening to them Mm -hmm. and reading their body language and like their facial expressions about how excited they were about doing this and how they can then, you know, tell me about what they did and what they, Mm -hmm. if they had more time, what they would do. Right. And it's that, that, that's connection Mm -hmm. piece, right? It's Mm -hmm. that community piece. It's, it's the teacher saying what you have, what you do is great. I'm, I'm so proud of you, Mm -hmm. but I also want to hear about how, this has affected you in mm-hmm. your own words. And I, and I, I want, I'm going to honor that piece. Mm-hmm. And as soon as we honor that, it's, you know, yes, we're still the lead in the classroom. But as soon as we honor that, this is how we get kids to start taking more risks. This is how we get them to, to trust us to actually do some of these things that, you know, they may have never done before. Would you agree? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. How, how would I, why would I choose to engage in all the content that you have to cover that's leading you to feel you have no time to engage in students telling their stories? Why would I choose to engage in that if you've never taken the time to listen to me and make me feel that my story belongs? Mm-hmm. Like it just, it's nonsensical. We have to give them the time. And also it doesn't need to be a big overhaul. I think people always go to like extremes. Like there's micro moments of storytelling that you could do starting immediately, like do an exit yeah. ticket at the end of class that says, what conflict did you run into today? And there's four check boxes. Was it a con- uh, conflict with content, with the environment, with your peers, or with yourself? They check it off. Oh, what great. was that conflict? How did you overcome it? Boom, exit mm-hmm. ticket. You have beautiful information about what's going on in your classroom culturally and even conceptually that you can start the next day from. That's a story right there. Oh, that's 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 a gem right there. Oh, it's in the book. Okay. <laughs> I, oh, which is you just. <laughs> You're, you're, this is great. Um, 
And now I want to talk about your book, right? Yeah. So again, that's this, again, this whole idea of story and, and using that to amplify, you know, amplifying student voices. That is the book that you are writing with Tom Shimmer. Yeah. yeah. And I know, congratulations, your first draft is in the can. Woo! Finally finished on right the plane on. yesterday. Okay. So, so <laughs> tell us about the book and when do you think we're going to see it uh, on bookshelves? The working title is Rehumanizing Assessment Through Story. So it's all about how we can expand our assessment repertoire through culturally responsive practices. And hopefully, fingers crossed, if we get through editing quickly, I would love to see it published by next spring. That might be ambitious, but I think it can be done. Aim um, for 2024, sometime in 2024. Sometime yeah. in 2024, okay. for sure. Okay. Yep. Nice. Mm -hmm. I'm so, I'm so excited. I have to admit, there's also this part of me, cause you know, I'm the administrator of beyond report cards mm -hmm. and we run a book club every year. And right now we're actually uh, reading um, Tom Shimmer's latest book, which yeah. is fant fantastic. Oh, yeah. And I, I, I'm out. thinking about when is yours going to be released so I can put it as, <laughs> <laughs> as a choice that we can do yeah. for the BRC book club. Oh, that means a lot. It, yes. Oh. I'm thinking about like, where's this book going to fit in the wider educational landscape and narrative? Cause like redefining accountability, just like Tom's huge bestseller grading from the inside out. They're very yes. like, yeah, they're very practical handbook types that will walk you through the work to like implement these practices. This book has a bit of that. It definitely has very practical sides. Each chapter has telling the story of what I'm learning and how I'm learning. So how can we gather stories of not only like our curricular content, our standards, our outcomes, whatever you call them, um, as well as the story of how they're learning. So like their personal learner story. So there is the practical, but it's got some big, like theoretical nudges. Like Tom has said many times in our process, this is going to be the most progressive book I've ever had my name on. So I'm like, this nice. is going to, it's going to be a, it's going to bring up some feelings for people. Yeah. <laughs> no, good, good. Because that's, I mean, that's, we need to, it's, it's, it's setting us up to embrace the messy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? that's what it is are you ready for elevator pitch oh yeah let's go okay so end of every podcast i pose a question geared to you so the idea is after i pose the question this somebody gets on the elevator and you know you're say on the third floor and they're going up to the sixth floor and you've got those three floors to tell them how it is so okay <laughs> an educator gets on the elevator natalie with you and tells you that they don't see the point in assessment change and they simply don't have the time you've got just three floors to inspire them to embrace the messy what do you tell them <laughs> well first of all in this work i've learned that you can't tell anyone anything to change their mind in fact it often causes them just to double down okay so probably open their mind to the possibility that something else might be true i'd say yeah you're absolutely right change mm -hmm. is incredibly hard and, and okay. no one's underestimating that this change is hard. But the question I have behind that is, have you ever gone through a tough change in your life that you look back on and wish you never did? Mm. And I would just leave them with that elevator Ooh. opens, boom, that's it. Go some think of the best, about that <laughs> little some of the best, Some of the best feedback we can give to students and other adults is ask them a question, right? Right. Oh, here's another right. question I love that I'll give to you as someone who does okay. this work that okay. worked so well recently with a room. Like it was a mic drop moment. Cause the question you hear the most in this work is, but if I don't grade it, students won't do it. It's not even really oh, a question. Gosh. They kind of say it as like a question. That's not a question. And so what I often ask in response, every time I hear that, I'd say, okay, yeah. So when you do grade it, are they going to be doing it for the right reasons? So that's so, a fun one too. Just oh, flip it. <laughs> <laughs> I love, I love to ask a question to every comment. It's just a fun way to, cause that's what I've oh. learned. Oh, think again by Adam Grant. That is one of my greatest, like dream oh. edu crush for the podcast. Yes, 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 yes. I love his work and his research into how to actually inspire rethinking. That was a big mm -hmm. catalyst in my yes. leadership journey of being like, I am a fire hose. Yeah. I am notorious in my early days of being so passionate to the point of being my own biggest barrier. I would just go and go and go and go and go and, 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 and everything I've read and everything I've just yeah. like, people yeah. are like, shut up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, no, I love him too. He's, he's got a new, he's got a new book coming out here. Oh I think. yeah. I think September. It's called? like something in September, I think. Oh, I'm so But excited. yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of his. I listen to his podcast, um, religiously, religiously. 
Natalie. He actually answered me. He might, we're one step closer to nice. getting him on Educrash. He said, he loves the sound of what I'm doing. Would totally nice. do it. He's just so busy. And then he offered me five names of colleagues that he really respects who would be excellent interviews. I was like, man, you just get better and better, Adam Grant. Right. No kidding. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of getting better and better, mm-hmm. Natalie, you're just so inspiring. I could, oh, you know, you. I just, I loved every second of this conversation. Thank you for embracing the messy and being part of this podcast. I just appreciate you so much. Keep doing what you're doing. Right back at you. Thanks for having me, Shannon. Thank you for listening to the Embrace the Messy podcast. This podcast was produced on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded lands of the Tene First Nation. I feel truly blessed to be able to live, work, and play here. I'd love to hear from all of my listeners. If you are inspired by someone who embraces the messy and would like me to interview them on the podcast, or you have feedback about an episode, send me an email at embracethemessypodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen so you don't miss an episode. This is Shannon Schinkel signing off, reminding you to embrace the messy. Bye.